0: This episode contains explicit language.
1: So, what are we opening up here, Andre? Uh, so, we do open a little ridge. This California's Infidel, one of my favorites. Uh, and this is from 1991. So, this wow. is the year that I graduated from high school.
0: I'll be honest with you. I know very little about wine, but that's a long time ago. That is a long time ago. I feel like that makes this wine special.
1: (laughs) You're trying to make me so old? Yes. (laughs) What?
0: (laughs) I graduated high school in 1995. I'm only a couple years younger than you. It's cool. A couple years. Okay. I'm just saying that Like that's my understanding is like older wine is generally better or more expensive. So I feel very honored that such an old bottle is being
1: opened. This is kind of how I roll. So
0: you poured it into a decanter through a little sieve there just to get any sort of sediment out. Yeah.
1: So we use like a little tea sieve. We want to just remove the sediment from the bottle. I'm several
0: feet away from this decanter and I feel like I can smell. You can smell it. Yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. No, man, it's vibrant. It's great. That's a good thing. smells pretty wonderful. Ridge is one of my favorite, Mm. favorite producers.
0: I'll let you tell me when this is ready. Is the wine breathing? Is that what's happening? This is ready, yeah. No,
1: we don't want it to breathe too long. Oxygen is the enemy of of a wine this old. We just wanted to remove the sediment from the bottle so we could have a better experience. So it's not granular. All right, let's do it. And we're just going to pour here. And here's to Friday. Yeah, cheers. Chin chin. Ooh.
0: What should I be tasting for here, Andre? Walk me through this process.
1: Uh, I would say smell it. It doesn't smell. It doesn't have any off odors or anything like that, right? Like it smells like a little dried fruit, raspberry, cranberry, a little bit of cinnamon. It's almost like a mulled wine, a little bit. Perfect for a Friday at noon. It's, I Love it. I love it. I love it. Sometimes it's good to be the king. That's right. <laughs> you know?
0: This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Today, I'm in Brooklyn at Ann Sons, which is a wine bar, but not an ordinary wine bar. It's a wine and ham bar. So you can order a glass of wine along with a plate of American ham sliced thin, the way you'd see prosciutto being served at an Italian wine bar. Now, I'm not just here to eat freshly sliced ham and have a glass of wine, although that does sound like a weekday afternoon well spent. I'm meeting up with the owner. Andre Houston Mack. Before Andre got into ham, and as you'll hear, he's very into ham. But before that, Andre's first love was
1: wine. Wine people love to talk. They love to talk about, like, you're not going to be able to get me to shut up today. <laughs> I'm, talking. I'm just going to keep talking, right? <laughs> Andre is a winemaker. His brand, Maison Noir
0: Wines, is in stores and restaurants across the country. He's also one of America's best-known sommeliers. He does wine videos for Bon Appetit that routinely get a million views, where he explains how to taste different varieties or lists his favorite wines in a box.
1: You know, if I was going to make a wine in a box, I would aspire to make something like this.
0: In other videos, Andre talks wine with celebrities like Dwayne Wade or Kevin Hart. You like that wine? Can I be honest with you? Yes. This is absolute sh- So he's a big name in the wine world. But for most of his career, Andres felt more like an outsider. A few years ago, he published a memoir-slash-wine guide called 99 Bottles. In it, he writes, The stereotype of a wine dude is a man who wears a tailored three-piece suit and wingtips. That's not really how I roll. When was the last time you saw a sommelier, winemaker, and overall wine and beverage expert in Air Jordans, sporting earrings in both ears, a Mickey Mouse wristwatch, thick-rimmed spectacles, a graphic T-shirt, and a baseball cap? Andre grew up in a military family, moving every few years. family eventually settled in San Antonio when he was a teenager. His first restaurant job was at McDonald's. And while his parents didn't drink much, Andre found his first drink of choice, Old English malt liquor. As he grew up, Andre became the kind of person who doesn't do anything halfway. Like when he wanted to learn to play chess, he read eight books on the subject. He bought a computer just to practice. When he was younger, he was convinced to be a basketball star. He practiced and played constantly. But like a lot of kids, at a certain point, he'd reach his limit
1: and realize he'd never make the NBA. And I felt like I blamed myself, right? That, like, I didn't work hard enough, but I worked really hard. But I still didn't work hard enough. And all I remember of my coaches always talking about, like, you have great potential. And, I, and it's like, you're, you, it's, it's up to you what you do with that potential. And since I didn't make it to the NBA, I felt like I failed. And I always kind of went through the rest of my life saying, I just don't want to be the guy with potential. I actually wanted to make it mean something. I said, if I find something else that I'm good at, I'm never fucking letting go. Right? Ever. Andre stayed in San
0: Antonio for college and after, working at Red Lobster for a while. But he wanted a more stable career path, so he started working in finance. In 2000, after a few years at that gig, he got caught up in a round of layoffs, found himself out of a job with a few months of severance. Just like with his dashed NBA
1: dreams... Basically, I felt like I had failed. I didn't go anywhere. I just sat on the sofa. I was doing absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing except watching a whole lot of the 90s sitcom Frasier. This is Dr. Frasier Crane. I'm listening.
0: Frasier, as you may know, was a show about the psychiatrist and radio host Frasier Crane and his brother, Niles. You know, their whole shtick was they're huge snobs. They love fancy restaurants, fine art, and wine.
1: Hmm, big, full-bodied, perhaps a bit baked. Essence of... Truffles, Long Finish, Chambertin, seventy-six. Bravo, Fraser. <laughs> they made fun of themselves. It made wine inviting, and like the rituals and the things that they had around wine was was inviting to me. It was intriguing. That show gave me the courage to walk into a wine store for the first time ever. I wanted to learn more about wine. I wanted to have more wine in my life. At that point, Andre knew nothing about wine, but thanks to Fraser, it quickly
0: became his obsession. The thing he wouldn't let go of. He started going to tastings, paying attention to restaurant wine lists. Eventually, he saw that an upscale chain restaurant called The Palm was opening a location in San Antonio, and they were hiring servers. So he applied. He went in on
1: the day of the interview. And I was talking to the CFO of the company, and he said, hey, kid, so what do you know about wine? And I was like, ah, you know, white with fish, red with meat. And, you know, and then they all started to laugh at me. In this room, Andre's answer was not super impressive. But I just remember him saying, you know, we can teach you anything that you need to learn about wine. Andre got the job and immediately started his wine education. The last two days of training, we tasted about 60% of all the wines. There were 60 wines on the wine list, and we started with white. And they laid out three white wines all in a row. And so it was like Riesling, Sauvignon Blanc, and Chardonnay. And all I could remember, it was Val Sauvignon Blanc, and I smelled it, and it was like white pepper. It was like so different than anything else and I was like this is wine like this is the diversity in wine like this is this is wild and then through the training what I started to realize was this is geography this is history right. you know I traveled the world with my parents like that is something I understood and that was interesting and it was like and once you started to realize that it was it was all of these things I was just I was dumbfounded and it was at that moment that I decided I wanted to do this shit. If you want to work in the wine industry, there's a few different paths.
0: You can make wine, you can sell wine, or you can be a sommelier. That's the person who decides what wines a restaurant will carry, talks with diners about what wine they want to drink, and then makes recommendations and serves it. Andre got it in his head that that's what he wanted to do. And unlike with his NBA dreams, he was going to make it. He was still waiting tables, but in his spare
1: time, he read every book on wine that he could get his hands on, studying labels and training his palate. And that was it, man. I was like, I was in it. Like, the restaurant doesn't technically have a sommelier. They had, like, a manager who was in charge of beverage. But, like, at that point, I was asking him questions he couldn't answer. Like, you know what I mean? Right. It was, I, I'm good at what I do. So, like, when I started to learn wine, all the other waiters depended on me. So they would say, hey, they want to talk wine on my table. I'll watch your tables. where you go over?
0: In 2002, Andre got his next break. He left the Palm to run the wine program at a new steakhouse in San Antonio called Bohannon's. Now he was meeting winemakers and distributors, gaining a deeper understanding of the industry. He started entering sommelier competitions where you have to decant and serve wine, pair it with food, and do blind tastings. He quickly won the title of Best Young Sommelier in America. But he still felt like he had a lot to learn. And since he was the top wine person at his job, he had to look elsewhere for guidance. So he cold-called all the best restaurants in Texas to ask if he could work there for free on his days off, just to gain more experience. One person at the top of his list was Paul Roberts, the only master sommelier in Texas, who worked at the prestigious restaurant Cafe Annie. The restaurant was in Houston, about three hours away. Andre wanted to see if he could connect with Paul, work at Cafe Annie, even for a day just to learn from the best. But when Andre called, Paul didn't pick up. Andre called a friend who knew Paul, and the friend told Andre, I worked it out for you. Be at the back door of the restaurant at 4 p.m. Andre hadn't talked to Paul directly. He felt weird about the whole thing. Still, he drove the three hours to Houston and
1: just showed up. Employees were out there smoking. My girlfriend was dropping me off. And I was like, no, I want to go. I, I'm going to go. This is dumb. She's like, no, you got to get out. I got it there. And he was talking on the phone. And he, I was in a boardroom and it had all these wine lists wrapped in saran wraps. Um, and he was walking back and forth. He threw down the wine list. He's like, this is what we're going to be working with. Get familiar. I said, OK. And then we hopped on the floor and it just worked. The
0: floor of a restaurant might be where Andre feels most comfortable. He knows why, and he knows how to talk to people. Part of it is just experience, but the other part comes from how he was raised in a military family. He learned early on how to adapt to new situations, how to read people, how to make friends.
1: Every two years, we move, um, and I kind of like that part. The idea of like being the new person, that comes with a certain amount of attention, right? You know what I mean? Right. So people are talking about you, uh, and then being able to walk up to a group of strangers— I mean, I think waiting tables is kind of the same way, right? It's like, there's a group of strangers that, like, over the next 60 minutes, I'm going to get to know them. Are they going to get to know me? That night with Paul Roberts, Andre really made an impression. He's like, yeah, sorry I didn't return your phone call. But basically, earlier this week, Monday, I accepted the job to be the wine director for all of Thomas Keller's properties. Thomas Keller is a chef and restaurant owner. His most famous place is the French Laundry in Napa Valley. It's one of the most exclusive fine dining restaurants in the world. And I just remember at the end of the night, he was just like, hey, I got to hire six sommeliers. Do you want to come to the French Laundry with me? And I was like, uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Andre did a formal interview and got the job. So he packed up his life in San Antonio and headed for California Wine Country. I just want to back up for a sec and say how incredible this is. A few years earlier, Andre was sitting on his couch watching Frasier, not knowing the first thing about wine. Now he was a sommelier at one of the top restaurants in the world. Andre writes in his book, 99 Bottles, that almost immediately at the French Laundry, he felt like his identity was being challenged, that he couldn't totally be himself. Part of that was his sense of style. They wanted him to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, ways that didn't feel like him. And then there was another thing. As André writes, he also happens to be African-American. He points out that according to Wines and Spirits magazine, his skin tone alone makes him, quote, rare as a unicorn when it comes to working in the wine business. In wine, André says he's mostly a lone presence. Customers at the French Laundry constantly mistook him for the one other black sommelier. At the same time, André
1: was learning a lot. Not just about being a sommelier, but about how to make wine. So I got that experience spending the afternoons before coming into work uh, at wineries. So all the wineries wanted you to come and taste out a barrel. So you get a preview of what's happening. It's like trying to analyze something in the future, right? Because, because the wine oh, hasn't fully developed it hasn't, yet. Oh, it's yeah. not done aging, right? Yeah. And so, and some of it just went through fermentation. And actually, when I got there, the chef had bought eight barrels of finished wine from a winery. And so we spent a lot of time at that particular winery. You know, going through the process, bottling, labeling, all of those kind of things, which was really exciting for me, you know, coming straight from Texas, you know, working on a wine project with the chef was was pretty spectacular. Just a year into his job there, Andre was
0: offered a position at Thomas Keller's brand new sister restaurant in New York called Per Se. He packed up and moved across the country yet again. Seeing the new restaurant, Andre could tell things were going to be different than at the French Laundry. I mean, French Laundry is in a renovated stone cottage among the vineyards and rolling hills of Napa Valley. Per Se is in midtown Manhattan, in an upscale mall with a Swarovski crystal store and an Equinox gym. This would be Thomas Keller's first new restaurant in New York in more than a decade, and developers were banking on his reputation to bring in millions of dollars. At Per
1: Se, Andre showed up to work most days at 7.30 in the morning and didn't leave till 1 a.m. It was a lot, man. I I took more showers at the Equinox in the basement than I did at my own apartment. I understand that, you know, so you'd have to take inventory of all the wine, which would take five hours,
0: give or take. Oh, yeah. And you had a tradition to drink <laughs> Old English, a 40. Yeah, 40 ounce, yeah. While doing that. Yeah. Why not, was that? not while doing it.
1: Okay. <laughs> no, I, I definitely would have been fired. Okay. Deserved <laughs> to be fired. <laughs> Let's just set the record straight. Okay, no, right, no. Right, The night check. before. Got, yeah. Oh, the night before yeah, the yeah, inventory so you would drink night it. before inventory, I would always drink a 40 ounce. It was just like kind of just a thing of where I came from. You know, I, you know, when I could start buying on my own or even drinking underage— that's what I drank, right? You know, hip-hop raised me. And so we drank what the rappers drank, and that was 40 ounces. Clearly, Andre had his own style. He liked to stand out. He didn't want to lose
0: that there. He didn't want to lose himself in this place. And he was still getting cues that maybe he wasn't quite fitting in. According to an article in Esquire, some of his coworkers blanched when he described one wine
1: as banging. You know, I wore a Dr. Seuss watch on the floor, you know, they made me take it off because like, they didn't think it was appropriate. But like for me, it gave me a way to be able to, to have a personality.
0: At Per Se, you also acquired a nickname.
1: Yes. Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, I think uh, everybody, was, everybody gives everybody a nickname. I didn't have one. And uh, we used to pour this wine. It was called Bial- it was a Zinfandel, but it was called the Black Chicken, and it was in reference to uh, they were farmers, but also bootleggers. And so, when you came to the farm, you could like, yeah, let me get a dozen eggs, let me get some milk, and then let me get a couple of those black chickens, which meant they, you know, they wanted some booze or some hooch. In the back. And so we were cracking up about it. So now throughout the night, they would say, hey, Andre, can I get a black chicken for table 22? And then someone was like, oh, yeah, we should call you black chicken. And I was like, no, I don't <laughs> think so. And then someone said something about black sheep. And then I, like, I had to go like serve a wine on a table. And then when I came back, I was like, maybe Mouton Noir, French for black sheep. Right. Um, but, you know, there was not a lot of people who look like me that do what I do. And so I think that was kind of the, the underlining fact in which was funny to all of us. Um, and, it, you know, I didn't take offense. I thought maybe I should, and I and then I shouldn't. And then I was like, I just ran with it. I was just like, Mouton Noir, I like that. I like that. And then I created a logo, and it was, a, oh my, it was my screensaver my, on oh my desk at work. Uh, and then people would call me Mouton for short, and that was it.
0: At Per Se, Andre tried to embrace the identity of the black sheep. But at times, it felt a little too real. Like when Riedel, a prestigious Austrian brand of glassware, wanted Andre
1: for an ad campaign. He had to check with his bosses before accepting. The bosses were like, no, you're not the face of this program. And I just thought that was interesting. But then when Black Enterprise came and said they wanted to do a feature on me, then they were like, "Okay, right? So they were okay if I was doing something in in the Black sphere, but they weren't okay for me being the face in in, an industry thing, which I thought was interesting.
0: A spokesperson for Per Se tells us the distinction was likely due to their policy limiting paid
1: endorsements. That's not how Andre took it, but he also didn't want to dwell on it. And my thing is, it's like, you just, I move on, you know, stuff like that happens all the time. Like if I was always upset about it, then maybe I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get as far in life or, or get things done if I'm occupied with that. Like I had to deal with that. You know what I mean? I deal with that kind of shit all my, my whole entire life. So it's like, whatever, like, all right, I see you. I understand what's happening here. And I just keep moving.
0: Coming up, Andre keeps moving right out the door of Per Se and transitions from serving wine to making it. Then later he develops a new obsession, meat slicers. Stick around.
1: And now, a delicious word from our sponsors.
0: Welcome back to The Sporkful, I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, we bring you the story of the heirs to the Jell-O fortune. Allie Rowbottom's great, great, great uncle bought the patent for Jell-O in 1899 for 450 bucks. 30 years later, he sold it for what would be almost a billion dollars in today's money. And that money was passed down for generations. But according to Allie's mom, it came with something else. She had learned as a child that the curse was specific to her family specific to the men in her family and how it haunted them because of the connection to Jell-O and the great wealth that Jell-O had brought the family. Jell-O became a twisted metaphor for all of Allie's family tragedies, but she also realizes it means something much bigger. That episode's up now. Check it out wherever you got this one. Okay, back to Andre Houston Mack. While he was working at Per Se, Andre met his future wife, Phoebe Damrosh. She was working as a server, and unbeknownst to management, she was also writing a book about the place and her experience there called Service Included, Four-Star Secrets of an Eavesdropping Waiter. She eventually left the restaurant so she could finish the book, but
1: Andre was still working there when his bosses heard that Phoebe's tell-all was about to be published. They freaked out, you know, you're in the manager's meeting and your girlfriend's name comes up and, you know, this is to let everybody know that she is now considered press and if anybody wants to talk to her, they have to talk to our PR person, people first. And I'm like, wow, this will be interesting pillow talk. <laughs> um, but uh, that, I think that gave me the, the confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own. I'd like I've been here for, uh, you know, three years and I, I, I feel like I want to, to move on. If Andre never quite fit in in the traditional world of wine, he would
0: make his own space by going from sommelier to winemaker. A friend of his was purchasing vineyards across America, and Andre worked out a deal to make his wine in Oregon. He decided to name his brand after his old nickname, Mouton Noir, Black Sheep. He designed the logo himself. He was ready to put the labels on the bottles. He just needed to fill them with something.
1: What about the actual taste of the wine? How do you decide what your wine's going to taste like? I knew what I wanted it to taste like. You know, it's like, I wanted lean Pinot Noir that was reminiscent of Burgundy. I wanted some stem inclusion because I wanted to give it a little bit of, um, you know, a little bit of stringency.
0: Stem inclusion means that instead of picking the grapes off the stems and then fermenting them, you just throw whole bunches of grapes, stems and all into the barrel to ferment. Most wines are de-stemmed, so stem inclusion makes for a very different taste. It may be a strong flavor for casual wine drinkers, but one thing's for sure, it makes the wine stand out. So Andre knew what he wanted his wine to taste like. But he still had to figure
1: out how to get there. So that was the hard part, right? So I was taught uh, as a sommelier to evaluate a finished product. But it was always my curiosity, and a lot of people who do what I do, the curiosity that leads them back. Why does this wine taste this way? Is it something that they're doing in the winery? Something that's happening in the vineyard? And so that's why we would work harvest, to get a better understanding. In Mouton Noir's first year, they produced about 5,000 bottles of wine
0: which meant Andre had to figure out how to sell 5,000 bottles of wine. Nearly every week, he was on a plane, traveling the country to visit stores and restaurants, trying to convince anyone who would listen to carry his product. As a sommelier, he'd been on the receiving end of these pitches. Now, he was the one making them.
1: The biggest surprise to me was that I realized that I was challenging the status quo every time I showed up anywhere, because no one was expecting me. You know, someone would say, well, you don't look like a winemaker. And then i I'd start, uh, and I start laughing because ah, I'm not talking about that. You know, like <laughs> your earrings, your glasses. And I was like, oh, because I, yeah, I mean, this is what I wear every day. Like I'm not I, like to put on a suit. It's not something that I would do.
0: I, I heard you say in an interview that, that sometimes you feel reluctant to put too much focus on the idea that you're a black owned business.
1: Correct. Why? Because that shouldn't matter but like the fact that I walk in here and that everybody puts their foot in their mouth or don't know how to act because, because it's me that shows up means that we probably should continue to talk about it. I want to be good at what I do. I, just don't, I don't want to be the good Black person to do that. When I got into wine, my passion led me to wine. I wanted to be around other people who are passionate about wine. So fulfilling that need superseded any need of being around people who look like me. There's no denying it if you met me that that it's a black owned business, but like, I don't feel like that's the selling point of what we have, like, kind of thing. You walk in, you like what it is, that's great.
0: After a bitter time, Andre had to change the name of his wine company from Mouton Noir to Maison Noir to avoid a conflict with another brand. Now, Maison Noir wines are sold all over the country in restaurants and stores. But about five years ago, after so much time of traveling to build his wine business, Andre decided he needed to make a change. So he and his wife Phoebe decided to pivot, they'd work towards opening a restaurant. Today, they own a mini empire, a hambar, a bakery, a wine store, Natch, a breakfast taco joint, an oyster bar, a specialty grocery, all within a few blocks of each other in Prospect Lefferts Gardens, the neighborhood in Brooklyn where they live. It's an area that's traditionally had a large Caribbean and African-American population, but it's gentrified a lot recently. The crown jewel of that empire is Ann's Sons, the hambar, where I'm sitting with Andre now. You can choose from a dozen different American hams, sliced in-house, and wash it down with American wines. Wine and ham are a natural pairing. You see the two of them together all over Europe.
1: It always seemed weird as an American, but when you traveled, I mean, Spain, they have bars that just served ham, right? They have legs of lamb hanging everywhere. I mean, ham, ham, like a ham. Uh, And the fact that Americans weren't a part of that conversation, like, we never had a right to, like, talk about that our ham was great, right? It was just, you know, the Spaniards and the Italians, really, right? Andre points out that
0: Thomas Jefferson had Virginia ham shipped to him in Paris, and the French
1: were impressed with it. In fact, Europeans are still impressed today. Italy couldn't keep up with the world's demand of prosciutto when they buy hogs from Ohio. So we've been doing country ham, which is our version, this kind of thing. So what we set up here is no different than a jamón bar that you would find anywhere in in Barcelona or Madrid, Um, but it's just all American. For me, I just thought, like, I want to do a small ode, to American food culture and history. And let's just do it in this little bar. So this doesn't exist anywhere in the world. There's no other American ham bar. This is the largest selection of American ham anywhere. Once
0: Andre started learning about American ham in true Andre fashion, he became obsessed. But if he wanted to open up a restaurant devoted to this new obsession, he would need one crucial piece of machinery.
1: Tell me about the meat slicer. Oh, man. (laughs) I I walked into a Bastianich restaurant Joe Bastianich, yeah, yeah. the restaurateur. restaurateur. Yeah, yeah. Right. and I, um, when I came to New York, and I remember going to one of his places, and out, out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, what is that thing over there that looks like a Ferrari? It's like candy-painted red, nickel-plated. I'm like, they're like, oh, those, that's a meat slicer. This was a vintage slicer from Italy. So it works like
0: those meat slicers you might see at any supermarket deli counter, but it looks more like one of those beautiful espresso machines in a fancy coffee shop. Bright color with chrome trim, sleek
1: Italian design. And the person says, oh, Joe collects them. They're expensive. They're like $25,000. I was like, oh, that's kind of an odd thing to collect. Yeah, who collects a meat slicer? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then the obsession started. Right. And I was like, oh my God, I, like, I need one. Fast forward, I bought one for my birthday um, named it Kimbo Slice. It's, uh, <laughs> it's in my, it's after in my dining room. MMA fighter? Yeah, yeah, after Kimbo. So it's in my, my dining room, in my dining room, my house. So I have you, one at my house. Oh, so it's just decorative? No, we use it. We slice ham on it. How big is it? It's pretty heavy. It's about, you know, 200 pounds. Yeah, I bought it on a Craigslist from a deli out in Long Island. So the idea is that I wanted one that was functional, but still needed some work.
0: Andre figured he could get it on the cheap get some use out of it, then
1: eventually get it restored in Italy. And yeah, when I was home, we would just, in the morning, I'd put out the ham and leave it on it. We'd just leave it on the machine all day and just slice and have ham throughout the day. Since buying that first meat slicer, Andre's bought several more. Not all for his house, mostly for his
0: businesses. When you walk into Ann's son's, that's the first thing you see, a 110-year-old machine. The Ferrari meat slicer of Andre's dreams. Can we take a closer look? Yeah, Can we walk over there?
1: Yep. Let's check this out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this one. So this is from the Computing Scale Company in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so this is what IBM used to be called. So they made slicers. A like lot IBM used to them. make meat slicers? Yeah. I guess pivoting isn't new. No, it is not. It's not. They did a lot, a lot of other things. What's the ideal thickness? Uh, for me, it's as possible. I do, like, number two is what we normally do. And it just depends on the ham, right? But, like, because it is really salty, right, the thinner you, you get it, uh, the less salty it becomes, right? So it kind of disintegrates on the on the palate. Country ham generally was consumed in thick slices, and you threw it in the pan, right? And then you made red eye gravy to kind of cut the saltiness from it. And so, but that was going on in the states. But like in Europe, you know, they were treating it with white, white gloves, right? And so it was like, oh, we're gonna slice it paper thin. And I didn't invent the idea of uh, treating an American ham that way, um, but it it seemed a better way to kind of be able to consume and uh, and do these things. So this thing is cool. Yeah. I don't think my wife's going to go for it. Yeah, it, it took some, some, some talking, lots of talking. It was really funny because she's like, what do you want for your birthday? And I was like, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm good. Like, then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started looking. And she's it, like, I'm sorry I asked. No, nah, she was cool with it. She's like, this is great.
0: Andre, can I hit you with a lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right. They say you can't judge a book by its cover. But can you judge a wine by its label?
1: You cannot. You, got, you have to drink it. What about the back of the label? I guess the back of the label could act a, a lot as, like, the publisher, right? You know, so they have an importer. That's one way to be able to, you know, if it has Kermit Lynch or it has somebody who's been well-respected, then there's something to that. But it doesn't, it's not a rule that can be applied across the board. Okay. Yeah. You've
0: said that champagne and Prosecco, sparkling wines, are better in a regular wine glass than in a
1: tall, narrow champagne flute glass. True. Why? The, the flute is actually just designed to capture the bubbles. It's more of a stylistic thing and less of a, of a functional thing. So when you actually go to visit the people who make the sparkling wine, they are not drinking it out of flutes when they're in the cellar. And when they're making it, they're drinking it out of regular wine glasses. Okay. Final question for the yep. lightning round. How do you feel about ice in wine? I don't think anything's wrong with it, but like the idea of not being in control of the temperature of the wine, so the colder it is, it numbs it, right? So if you're drinking not so great wine, that's okay. But if you're drinking Merceau or something great that's really known for the nuances, you don't get that if the wine is so too cold. I gotta say,
0: a couple months back, I went to interview Jacques Pepin. Uh And uh, after we finished taping, he poured me a glass of wine Uh on ice. Yep. It was
1: delicious. That's not what I would do, but if that floats your boat, do it. That was Andre
0: Houston Mack. You can find his wines at MaisonNoirWines.com. His memoir slash wine guide is called 99 Bottles, Black Sheep's Guide to Life-Changing Wines. And hey, if you're ever in the Prospect Lefferts Gardens neighborhood of Brooklyn, you can check out his hand bar and Sons, along with his other places on Rogers Avenue. Coming up next week on the show, a special story about spam. By the way, for that one, check out last week's show about the Jell-O curse. It's up now where you got this one. Please make sure you subscribe to or follow this podcast in whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. Go ahead. You can find the button in that app. It's probably a heart or it says follow or subscribe. It's in there somewhere. Go ahead and click it right now while you're listening, please. And thank you. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman.
1: Hi, this is Amy from Austin, Texas, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better.